Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you're listening to the Fairy and Fantasy class. Welcome to episode 30 of Fairy and Fantasy. This time, Professor Olson concludes his discussion of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children's classic by C.S. Lewis. Okay, good morning. So, uh, today I would like to get to that large-ish topic that I was putting off last time, um, that is, the lion person. Um, I want to talk about Aslan, but before we talk about Aslan, um, I want to talk about talking about Aslan first. Um, we talked a little bit, um, especially on the, uh, on the makeup class the other weekend uh, in Princess and the Goblin, about allegory and what we do with allegory and stuff. And obviously, when we're talking about Aslan and his sacrifice on the stone table, we find ourselves addressing the same kind of issue again. The main thing I want to say before we start this conversation is that we need to be careful even here. I say even here because, of course, the cues that we get for allegorical interpretation here are much stronger uh, even than the, I thought, at moments, particularly strong ones that we were getting um, in The Princess and the Goblin, not consistently, but at moments. And here, it seems much clearer. But what I would like to argue here is that, again, I would even here, we need to be careful. It is easy to be sloppy even in the interpretation of this, which seems relatively straightforward. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, well, let me ask this in the form of an obviously trick question. Is Aslan Jesus? <laughs> Pardon Kelly's maniacal laughing. She is finishing her thesis on this topic, and uh, uh, <clears throat> next week this time she'll be all better. I would like to be helpfully positive. The answer is whatever Kelly didn't say there. Truly, that is indeed helpful, Mac. <laughs> now, as I said, this is obviously a trick question. Um, what problems are there with answering yes to that question? Interpretive problems, I mean. Yeah, best. Well, the first thing is, if you answer yes to that, you're saying the entire Chronicles of Narnia is an allegory for the Bible. Right, and this is often how they are discussed. And it is not true that they are an allegory of the Bible in the rigorous sense of the word allegory. Um, is because if we say uh, that Aslan is Jesus then what next do we have to say the white witch is Satan Jesus is a lion (laughs) I guess by transitive property (laughs) well I mean no I mean that, that, that kind of that that seems a little silly but of course that's one of the problems Right? Well, isn't that what, how it works out if you use the comparison on the great chain of being? Uh, parallel to, but not identical to, uh, on the great chain of being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I looked this up, and um, I, think, I think whoever did the smart notes for this, like, was... <laughs> <laughs> 
is very devoted to like piecing out the allegory because like it, it says in like when they're talking about the characters like which is the white which is Satan like they explain like why and like everything's an allegory and like awesome yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true I can think of scarcely any differences between the white witch and Satan um, can you I challenge you even one no they're identical um, <laughs> but this is again this is the problem now believe me I am not trying to argue this sort of aggressive and quite silly converse to this, which is, uh, there is no religious signification in this story at all. If you were made to think of Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross, it is purely in your imagination. Obviously it isn't. Obviously we're supposed to be thinking of uh, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross here. That, I think, is perfectly plain. But what I'm trying to say is, how, how exactly do we do that? What exactly are we being invited to do with this story? And again, I, I'm, I, I'm suggesting that it isn't allegory in this rigorous Sparknotian sense. Um, <laughs> must, be a, must be an Augustinian author of Sparknotes. Uh, Augustinian readings are fun. An Augustinian reading, uh, St. Augustine was just the best ever at doing allegorical readings. It is taking something, no matter what the author's intentions were, and rendering it into allegory. It's a brilliant intellectual exercise, and he was so good at it. Um, and I love that. Fun party game. But I don't think <laughs> that this is what we're being invited to do here. Because again, very quickly, very quickly, the allegory, if we comprehend it as allegory, breaks down. Um, it, it, even if we accept the first couple steps, we could say Aslan equals Jesus. We can go, let's go ahead and say the white witch equals Satan. Edmund equals Judas. Judas? I mean, he's the traitor, but he's the one for whom the sacrifice is being made. The one who is being redeemed by the sacrifice, which in Christian theology would make him what? Yeah, fallen mankind, right? And so his siblings are <coughs> what? The beavers are, I mean, yeah, it's, <laughs> this is the point. It very quickly breaks down. Even if you accept the initial premises, that is, even if you can, even if you can do the Jesus-Satan thing uh, with Aslan and the White Witch, as soon as you try to go beyond that, um, I'll with exactly all due respect to the author of Sparknotes, it breaks down really quickly. Um, and this, I think, is our cue. This, I think, it was one cue anyway, not to do that, not to be thinking that far. And then what I would, the, the question then is, well, then what are we to do with it? Because again, I think the, 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 the contrary, I think contrary is the perfect word um, for people who would then want to go in the opposite direction with this book and say, no, so uh, no religion here. That's obviously not appropriate either. So what are we supposed to do with this, do you think? Barbara? Um, I think, just like you were saying, we can't help but make the parallels because I think we're supposed to feel just as profoundly about both the sacrifices. Um, you know, the, the deep emotional response that we would have to Jesus' sacrifice, we are also supposed to have to Aslan's sacrifice. They are... Comparable in how profound they are. Yes, yes. This response receives the endorsement of Kelly's thesis. Yes. Yes, exactly. No, clearly. And we can say, I mean, there's no question that you can see parallels. 
and very, very plain parallels um, to the, sacri- you know, the, the, the sacrifice of the innocent divine figure on the part of the fallen human person whose blood is redeemed by that sacrifice. And we even get the, 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 the close parallel in some ways uh, to the Easter morning story when the women come to the tomb and find the tomb empty. Um, now, they don't get to romp around with Jesus in the same way <laughs> that Peter and Su- that Susan and Lucy, sorry, get to romp around with Aslan. But, but nevertheless, that, 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 that moment of discovery and that moment of discovery, even by, by women, by female characters anyway, is, is, is a pretty close parallel. So now, there's clearly, there's lots of stuff here. Um, what I would, just sort of thinking terminologically, what I would suggest is that... Basically, we need a word. This is not allegory. Um, and, and I say this, again, not to try to protect this text, but to try to protect the concept of allegory. I'm a medievalist. I like allegory. Um, and I want to be able to, ha- to have that word actually mean something, preferably what it actually means, uh, and therefore to be able to use it appropriately. Not enough people use allegory anymore. I think more authors should be writing good old-fashioned allegories. I think they're, they rule. But anyway... Um, so what do we call this? What do we do? And the, the, the distinction I would like to suggest is, brace yourself for this shock, the one suggested by Tolkien. Um, he talked about this explicitly uh, in his uh, preface to the second edition of The Lord of the Rings. And he did this in response to a whole bunch of people who were doing allegorical interpretations of the first edition of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and it was a very popular movement within the first few years, which, remember, was only about 10 years after the end of World War II, uh, to interpret the Lord of the Rings as an elaborate allegory of World War II itself. The Ring of Power was the atomic bomb, and Sauron was Hitler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and Gandalf was, I don't know what, Winston Churchill? I, I <laughs> you don't have to push that one too far before it starts getting silly also. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I think that would be good. <laughs> it would require some recasting, wouldn't it? But anyway, anyway, anyway. The point is, in responding to this, Tolkien was objecting to this on these exact same grounds. And the, here's, the, here's the problem, the biggest problem that Tolkien had with this, is he said, the problem is, when you start doing that, by definition, you stop paying attention to the story. Because in a real allegory, the plot and the characters are just the vehicle of the ideas. This is a thing that is really exploring certain abstract ideas and is not actually very, is not interested at all in the characters as people and not even very interested in the story other than as a series of events which are designed to, to, to sort of illustrate particular things about these abstract ideas. That's how allegory works. Now, that's perfectly fine. But... He says, that's not what I was trying to do. And when you do that, then you're not paying attention to the story anymore, as story. Instead, you are just thinking about these other things and essentially chucking the story out. Um, and the, distinction, the vocabulary distinction that he made was the difference between allegory and applicability. He says, certainly the story is applicable. Yeah, you can apply the stuff that you can see going on in the Lord of the Rings to World War II. Many of the, many of the principles uh, that are advocated or explored in the book are certainly applicable to that situation as to other situations. But 
It's not an allegory, and the distinct, the, how he explained the distinction between allegory and applicability was in the relationship between the author and the reader. That is, he said, an allegory rests in the purposed domination of the author. That is, there are, this is a particular interpretation that you are supposed to make, and I'm going to arrange the story so as to lead you to that interpretation, that one proper interpretation, in order for you to see what I am saying. So allegory rests in the purposed domination of the, of the author rather than the freedom of the reader. Applicability is in the freedom. So you take what the story says and you, as the reader, can apply it in various ways if you choose to do that. Now, Lewis, I would argue, is doing the same thing, that he has made the Chronicles of Narnia applicable and that you may apply it if you like. Now, it's very easily applicable. In many ways, it is much more easily applicable, and you might perhaps feel like the freedom of the reader is somewhat more constrained in the Chronicles of Narnia than in Tolkien. I think one could actually make an argument for that, but I still think that the fundamental principle applies and is really important. Aslan is connected with Jesus, not just in parallels. In later books in the series, he actually connects himself explicitly to Jesus. But... Even that does not make a mere equivalence. Because as we can see, by looking, and we only have to look at it for a couple minutes before we can see, this is not the same story as the story of the cross. It's very parallel to it. Clearly, we are being invited to think about them together. But the story of Narnia is not the same story as the story of Earth. The story of the sacrifice on the stone table is not the same story as Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Now, again, applicable, highly applicable, easily applicable, but that applicability still lies with us. And what I want to do here is basically focus on that story itself. What is the story of Aslan and the stone table? Um, And without, you know, for this time as much as in us lies without respect to that other story which it is plainly paralleling and to which we are being invited to apply it. But I first want to try to see if we can get at the Narnian story on its own grounds because only then can we really even get the full richness of applicability that lies available to us should we choose to do that. Therefore with that in mind With that long and extensive disclaimer, I now want to ask the following simple questions. First, what is Aslan like? What is emphasized about him? What kind of characteristics does he have? How do people talk about him? What are the primary elements of his character that are being emphasized in the story? Aaron? He's good but dangerous. Never mistake that he's not dangerous. He's not safe. Right? Remember, Susan asks about this. Susan Wood, right? She's the most timid, excuse me, gentle of all of them. And she, when they talk about, when she first finds out he's a lion, she says, will it be quite safe? And the beavers say, no, of course not. He's not safe, but he's good. Good, but not safe. He is, in the phrase made famous through the rest of the Narnian series, he is not a tame lion. He is not domesticated, but he's good. 
Um, and I think that that certainly is a crucial element of, of Aslan. He is both very good and an object of, rever- of reverence, but he is also wild. He is a wild animal. Um, and never quite safe. And nobody, no matter how much they love him, no matter how much they revere him, no matter what their experience with him ever feels just completely comfortable in his presence. Um, That doesn't mean that his presence does not often bring comfort. We certainly see it do, for instance, to Edmund, right? When the witch comes in and everyone is uneasy, but Edmund seems less uneasy than anyone else. Why? What's he doing? Do you remember? Um, He's just looking at Aslan. um, It seems like he has just more faith. Yeah, he's just staring at Aslan the whole time. And as he's staring at Aslan, he is, he is calm. He is comforted. So, but still wild, right? Still not safe. Christine? I guess related to that is like people's, um, I don't know, certain characters' ability to look at him. Like how you were just saying like Edmund was like staring at him. But like, uh, I think it was one of the beavers who said it. Like, I don't, I don't know. It, or if it was said at all that you, it's hard to look at him, or like the white witch, like found herself like not really directly looking looking at him when they met. Yes, Mrs. Beaver notes that particularly that she doesn't quite meet his eyes, right? And Mrs. Beaver said, "This is that's a follow up of that previous comment when Mrs. Beaver says that she does not expect that the that if the white witch is able to 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 you know to to stand unafraid in front of Aslan, it's more than she expects of her." Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Jordan? From tying in with the whole wild animal thing, there's a really interesting parallel to be made between that and his sovereignty, that he's the king. Because yeah. I, I, I really like the idea that no one's entirely comfortable with him, even though he's good, because even the most benevolent king can theoretically order you to have your head chopped off or something like that. There's a lot of parallels between, you know, the complete sovereignty of a great ruler and the complete ferociousness of a wild beast. Yeah. There's always that potentiality you're afraid of. Especially a, a, an enormous lion, right? No, I agree. The, the, the power, the authority that Aslan has is clearly, it seems to me, being represented in the physical power of the lion. And we get this emphasized a whole bunch of times, right? Like the weight of his paws and the, you know, the references as he's being tied up that, you know, if he tried, he could, like, kill a lot of them with one paw and... Um, and uh, Lucy's thought, I think, that, you know, it's like how terrible that paw would be if he didn't know how to velvet it, right? So, I mean, it's, um, yeah, yeah, no, clearly his, his sheer physical power is emphasized by the children as they're looking at him, and that does seem to be sort of more broadly representative of his power, and I agree that that's also not only associated with his wildness and, and sort of, a, in some sense, a consequence of it, but it goes hand in hand with it, right? He is not subject to be a tame lion, to be a domesticated lion, would be him subordinating himself to other people's desires, to other people's laws, right? He's not going to follow human laws and, 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 and be tame. He's the one who makes the laws and is therefore, from the perspective of everybody else, wild because, in that sense, uncontrolled. What else? Anything else? Let's go back to the moment that I skipped before. That is the reaction that the children have when they first hear Aswan's name. Okay? 
Yes, he feels dread and horror. Peter feels brave and adventurous. Brave and adventurous. Susan. Yes, yeah, so she her experience seems to be one of, of beauty. It's an aesthetic pleasure. A wonderful smell. Or like beautiful music. Peter is inspired with courage and adventurousness. And Lucy? Joy. Joy. Relief. I love how it's described. And Lucy got the feeling you had when you wake up in the morning and realize it's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. Yeah. Yeah. That's a flexibility. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, no. Uh, she feels there's relief, freedom. Yeah. Um, that kind of school imagery Lewis will use fairly persistently uh, through the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, that certainly being being an experience that, that all children can relate to. Um, and remember that Lewis is writing us for a sort of a primarily boarding school population, so it had an even uh, that that sense of the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer had therefore an even greater sort of sense of liberation. Um, you're actually being released physically from the school and going home uh, to see your family again. Um, another aspect of Aslan that I think is important not to overlook, the one that I already alluded to earlier. Um, the, the, the romp with Susan and Lucy after his resurrection, um, the, the mirth, the, well, even the humility of it, it's a very undignified moment for Aslan, and I think that that's important to sort of enter into the picture. Um, he just plays with them. We see his sadness even what begins to look almost like depression the day before, and then his, his joy and playfulness afterwards. I think this part is one of my favorite parts in the whole book, and I just, I love the part where, um, where it says, um, it was such a romp as no one has ever had except in Narnia, and whether it was more like playing with a thunderstorm or playing with a kitten, Lucy could never make up her mind. That's my favorite line in the entire book. Yeah, yeah. That's a really evocative description of Aslan, isn't it? One part thunderstorm, one part kitten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's... Um, but not just like 50-50, right? It's like both of those things simultaneously. Um, yeah, no, I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Um, also, another thing I would point out on, in a sort of a similar note is his... His affection. That is, he's, the way that he speaks to people, especially to the children, especially to Lucy, is very affectionate. Like, this is not just benevolent, right? Not just, ah, uh, my loyal subjects, 
whose appropriate reverence to me meets my approval or whatever. I mean, this is, and it's not even just kindness. He, this is a very awkward way to say it, really likes them, it seems, that he has a genuine affection for them. Um, and I'm using that word sloppily, but um, a very personal love for them, um, which again, I think is important to keep in mind at the same time uh, as thinking of his authority and wildness. It seems to be, I think, as, an, as important a part of his, of his nature, because I think one of the things that we see in that first reaction that the children have upon hearing his name is that once they meet him, that basically that that seems to be in some sense like a kind of presage of the relationship that they have with him, or rather that they find that they already have when they meet him. There's that moment when they first see him from a distance and they're afraid to approach him, and Peter and Mr. Beaver and Susan have that long, awkward, you go first, no, you go first conversation, and they're really uncertain about approaching, but once they approach him, from that point on, they speak to him and he speaks to them like they've all known each other for years. Um, there's no like introductory period, there's no... Um, there's, there's a kind of immediate intimacy with them. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that we can see um, and that we can even see in the reactions, especially the three positive reactions described in the children at first, right? That is, there is something in him, in his very name, certainly in his presence, which just kind of resonates with their experience. It's not like, it's not just, he's the kind of person that once you meet him, it's, it's like you already knew him. They have already known. Um, and the reaction that they have to him shows he's not just new, um, but rather all of these other things are, that he was connected to all of these other things, or rather all of those other experiences that they're recalling are connected to him, and that seems to be sort of the, the, way, that, the way that Lewis describes their relationship. Now, that's, uh, that was my first question. What is Aslan like? My second question, what does Aslan do? Let's talk about the actions we see him performing and the significance of those actions. What does he do? What is his actual role? This might sound like a trick question. It isn't. Uh, I'm just inviting. There are several things that he does. He is the one who kills the, uh, the white witch, which I thought was interesting because with the way the children are talked up, and especially Peter, you would think that was almost supposed to be their role, that they're the ones supposed to take out the great evil, but actually that's Aslan's doing. Yeah, yeah, and especially even the, the fight with Mogrim almost seems to set that up, right? There's a kind of parallel, like the, the army is there and they're ready to pounce on the wolf, and he's like, no, no, you know, let the son of Adam go. And it seems, and because you know, he's... he's he needs to earn his spurs, his knighthood, in other words, right? And that seems like training. I mean, is this like foreshadowing? Is this parallel? Nope. No, actually, it's not going to be. So I agree. It does seem almost like it should be that way. The whole prophecy is about the coming of them. But actually, no. No, it's just, it's Aslan who does take her out. And I agree. I think that that's, that that's interesting. That's important. In some ways, um, the establishment this, of course, being another thing that Aslan does, the establishment of the kings and queens seems to be one of the primary things that he does. And he is not... Um, the way that he absents himself from the main battle, much to Peter's uneasiness, 
right, in, when Peter is receiving his instructions about how to conduct the battle, apparently in Aslan's absence, does, again, sort of seem like what he is doing is he is putting, well, either putting the children forward or allowing them to go forward. They are the, the prophecies are about them. They are the, fulfill, the fulfillment of the prophecies. But he is the one who destroys the white witch. Um, and we can see this, that is a fulfillment of what has already been happening, right? The, when spring is coming, spring is coming when Aslan comes. Um, it is, it is Aslan's approach, as you know, that in the the chapter title, you know, about Aslan drawing nearer, and that means spring is arriving. So, it's not that it isn't appropriate that he destroys her, but I agree with you that it is interesting, and I think it's especially significant when we think about his relationship with the children and Narnia and their role and his connection with them. Yeah, Jordan? Um, I think the larger theme that you can see throughout his actions is that of renewal, that he both literally and metaphorically undoes evil. He undoes the way which in the sense that he, you know, kills him, but he also undoes the turning people into stone to bring the spring. He sets, sets things out right, but not, not because... He, here's what I think is really interesting. He doesn't make them better than they're supposed to be. He makes them how they're supposed to be, and everything that's bad is an illusion of that literally is, is how it seems to be presented. Yes, and I agree. This is very much a restoration of order and not an establishment of a new order or... Yeah, no, exactly. This is... Um, remember that there is an Aslan verse. Remember the Aslan verse? Wrong shall be set right when Aslan comes in sight. Um, and, and that basically that, that, that rhyme speaks very much, uh, Jordan, to what you're saying. Um, and remember, this comes back to the original nomenclature fight between the white witch and the rebels, like the beavers. That is, is she the witch or is she the queen? And they say, no, she is not the queen. She never was the queen. She is trying to say that she is the rightful queen of Narnia and therefore anything not in her reign, that's the aberration, that her reign is the norm. But it is very clear uh, to the people in Narnia, that is the rebels in Narnia, um, that she is, in fact, clearly the aberration and that Aslan is restoring things. So I agree. I think that that is um, certainly his his destruction of the White Witch is the final stamp on that. Yeah, Christine? Um, I can't remember the wording, but I'm a little confused. Like, does he... It said that, like, he goes to, like, other countries that... Are they in Narnia? Or are they, like... I don't know, but... He like, at the end, you mean when he yeah, leaves? Yeah, at the end when he leaves, and they're just like, where did he go? So I was, it didn't say in what capacity he does this. Like, mm-hmm. is he a diplomatic figure? <laughs> like, does he, does he establish human rule else? Like, I don't really know, but he has some sort of... Yeah. No, I agree. It is vague. It's not clear at all. Um, especially not just at the end of book one here. Um, it's not clear. And I think that that seems perfectly fitting, or rather seems to be kind of of a piece with what we see of Aslan. Aslan comes from where? Across the sea. Yeah, over the sea. When does he come? That is a trick question. (laughs) Whenever he wants to come, right? Unpredictably, on his own time, on, you know, by his own choice of occasion. Um, he, 
It comes from we don't know exactly where, somewhere off to the east across the sea. Um, in other words, Christine, I'm sort of in a roundabout way coming back around to your question. We don't know what Aslan does, right? And there is this sense all the way through that we're getting only a glimpse of Aslan and only a small fraction of Aslan's own story. This is very emphatically not a story from Aslan's perspective. Um, and he, what, what, what is he doing? What are his other countries? What else does he concern himself with? We don't know. But as Aslan would no doubt say, that is somebody else's story. It's a favorite saying of Aslan, starting in book two. Um, he doesn't tell people other people's stories. Um, so, but but we do have. But I think it is important that we get that sense at the end that Aslan is bigger than this story, um, and that even this, which seems really kind of huge. I mean, like he sacrificed his life and was resurrected. That seems like a big deal um, but yet even this is only one story of the many stories that he's involved with I want to come to another thing that I had wanted to talk about last time but didn't get to uh, from this different direction but it's another thing that Aslan does that is the, the healing of the statues the Yes, the, the de-petrification of people. Um, and, and I want to kind of step, take a step backwards and think about this first from the White Witch's perspective. What is interesting about the White Witch and her connection to statues? If you think about it in the larger context of what bad guys do, as we have seen, like the, the actions of antagonists, of antagonists, so far. If you are in Lang, what would we expect witches to do? Eat you, clearly. If we're in McDonald's, what do you expect the antagonists to do? What's their attitude towards humans, and especially human children? Marry and enslave you. Marry and enslave you. In a sense, assimilate you. Right? I mean, we can see this even from, from Harewip's uh, cruel plan to like sew her feet together so she doesn't have toes once she's his wife. You remember that? In other words, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to subjugate her and sort of forcibly integrate her into goblin society. There is that one conversation between the goblin king and queen in The Princess and the Goblin where it does seem that they do eat people occasionally. Remember when, when the queen is making these references about how she might you know, she's thinking of something else to do with Curdy, and the king is like, oh, well, you know, if you would like to, okay, go ahead, you know, you can eat him. Um, I don't, I, but though he sort of excuses himself, right? He doesn't really quite feel like eating Curdy. Um, and the queen says, though, that's not exactly what she meant, but clearly the topic of conversation between them shows that this is not like an unprecedented thing for a goblin to eat a human being, but it's very far from what they normally do. Um, their plan, certainly, where Irene is concerned, is very different. The White Witch doesn't eat children. She feeds them. And she doesn't assimilate them. Well, unless you count, you know, like lawn ornaments, assimilation. She turns them into stone. 
What do we think about that? Okay? a, you know, as it turns out, a noticeably reversible process. Um, the people are not destroyed, they're just disposed of. They are rendered inoperable. Yeah, Emily? Um, I think going along with what Kat was saying, it's, it's, it's a matter of pride more than anything, you know. Oh, we could be both yeah, I've heard like, and where's pride go before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Her turning of them into stone does seem to be colored with pride, especially the way she keeps them as trophies in the courtyard of her castle. Um, and I and think this, of course, is very much in line with the thinking of Edmund when he is still in his traitor mode, right? And he thinks he's gonna, she's going to turn Aslan into stone, and he sees the stone lion and assumes that this is exactly what she's turned him into stone. She's but now he's like the centerpiece of her little collection, um, and this is uh, perfectly per- perfectly natural. But back. Uh, I think it's interesting that uh, in turning them to stone, she does the same thing to living creatures as she does to uh, the environment, sort of freezing them and putting them in layers of suspended. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that that's a connection that's really compelling. Um, she freezes them. Um, she freezes them in this moment of time, like she's frozen, like she's frozen Narnia. Um, not only literally freezing it, but also in time, right? Always winter and never Christmas. The calendar never moves. It's not just like, I'm going to make there be cold weather year-round. The calendar doesn't move. Um, it's always winter and never Christmas. So yeah, Narnia has been frozen, just as her opponents have been frozen. I think that that is a, a connection hard to resist. Karen? In the way in which most antagonists seem to be the, their own undoing, she brings them all together to her castle, where, which gives Aslan easy access to turn them all back. If she just, I don't know, scattered them around Narnia, then it would have taken forever. But she gives him an army to unpetrify right there in her own castle. Right, and it's the army that ultimately overthrows her, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah. There, there is a kind of a tendency for things to work out that way, isn't there? Matt? I think it's also relevant that, unlike the witches in Lang and McDonald, she is not actually gaining any benefit from this. She's just destroying. You know, the goblins are gaining new people, and the witches in Lang are at least gaining, you know, a source of nutrients. But she's just cluttering up her courtyard with them. It's purely Right, right, exactly. And, I mean, I think you can save and... Um, the, the, the goblins in McDonald are clearly profiting most. Not only do they get this, this new queen and, and revenge, but they also get power over her father, the king, right? I mean, this is, which is their primary motivation to have her as a kind of hostage. Now, again, we see what Harold intends to do with her when he has her as his wife hostage. But anyway, there is a... So, yes, clearly there's utility there. Um, there's no utility here to quote Peter out of context. It's just spite. Right? Um, it's just spite what she does to people. Which couldn't be more clear than in what seems to me sort of the central iconic moment of her turning of people into stone. 
right? That is the little Christmas party with the animals celebrating their, their, their Christmas dinner. It's just spite. What were they doing wrong? Enjoying themselves. We can't have that. <laughs> and so for absolutely no benefit to herself, she just turns them into stuff. Let's stop this merriment, this gluttony, this waste from that. Jordan? Um, I, I think it's a really interesting statement about the nature of evil, because her evil is that of enslavement and domination. She calls herself a queen, and what, there's no enslavement more total than to rob someone of the ability to act at all. And that's what she's doing. It's, and and she, I think there's an interesting parallel here of in a place you would not expect. The Dean Ragnall away from Bath parallel about sovereignty and mastery. Aslan is a is like the wife of Beth and the, and the you know, mastery there, sovereignty there, because he's the rightful king, but he doesn't like, force you to go about, you know. It's not quite the same, because, you know, not lovers, but yeah, I think yeah. the idea of sovereignty versus mastery and, you know, yeah. how that works is a very interesting parallel. I agree. The white bitch wants to be a, a, a master and rule, as like wants to be sovereign and reign. No, I, I think that the the... No, the sovereignty and mastery thing is very, is very well thought of. I'm having a hard time being mature about it, though, and I'm still internally giggling at the sentence, Aslan is kind of like the wife of Bath. Uh, <laughs> but, but I'm trying to get over it. No, you're right. Because, I mean, you're right. That, definitely, there, um, one thing that we can clearly see in Aslan and the White Witch is very different senses of what it means. It's not just that one really is the king and the other is just setting herself up as the queen and doesn't have the right. One of the reasons for that is the fact is, is, is the very different way in which they understand sovereignty um, and what sovereignty mean, means. So yeah, I agree. And, and certainly your first point was also excellent, that by turning them into, in, into stone, this is, it's like the ultimate enslavement. Right? I mean, they're, they're the most docile slaves in the entire world. They're completely subject to her will, and certainly, certainly they're never going to give her any trouble. I mean, except in it very unlikely circumstance that they're all depetrified at the same time, but <laughs> other than that, they're not going to give her any trouble. Um, now, Aslan sets them right, just as he sets Narnia right. Um, and what do we make of that? Thinking about all of this, you know, this significance that the witch's petrification of people has, um, what do we see in Aslan's liberation of people? What is, what is being emphasized about him? Well, he sets everyone free and doesn't really make a distinction. Theoretically, he, he, he could be worried that the giant is going to, you know, smash them all. But he doesn't. He's like, no, he said the feet right, the rest of them will fall. <laughs> yes, not that Lucy and uh, Susan are not quite sure that everybody should be set free universally, right? Um, but, uh, but yeah, yeah, no, that turns out all right. Um, the mechanism... I think is really important. Aslan's breath is a is a is a pretty dominant theme. I think uh, in Narnia, he's always breathing on people. Um, <laughs> he's more roaring. He is what? Or roaring. Or roaring. Yeah. No. So, I mean, his his. You remember he does this to Peter. He does this to. I mean, whenever you're face to face with Aslan, the you know Aslan's breath coming around you, um, which seems to be connected. You also see in later books as the series goes on this reference to the effect that the air of Narnia has upon people. Um, it's always the air. It's like it's something that they breathe in, which changes them and has this kind of magical effect on them. And I think that we kind of have to connect 
you know, the air of Narnia with the breath of Aslan um, in this sense. And so we see life being brought back to the, uh, to the statues by the breath, by the breath of Aslan. Um, there's a, there's a Bible parallel here too, though it's a slightly trickier one than the crucifixion one. What's the reference to? Do you remember? What is it then? Yes, Genesis chapter 2, when God forms Adam out of the dust of the earth and then breathes the breath of life into his nostrils. That's certainly like what we see. It's not in their nostrils, right? But uh, he does breathe the breath of life and turns them into living creatures that were stone. Um, Now, of course, there are New Testament parallels as well. um, But that is sort of certainly an iconic kind of parallel. Um, and I think can, we can pretty easily connect that idea, the life-giving breath of Aslan, put against the, notice the sort of mechanical, uh, petrifying magic of the witch that is just mechanical in the sense that it's focused on her wand, right? It's not even sort of a part of her. When her wand is broken, she can't do it anymore compared to the breath of Aslan making things alive. Um, one last note. I was about to say I'm swiftly running out of time, except that's not quite accurate. Ooh, look, I've got a minute. Um, the deep magic from the dawn of time and the deeper magic from before the dawn of time. What are we, what are we dealing with here? What kind, of, what kind of system is this? On the one hand, it always sort of struck me that this seems like the deep magic seems horribly precise. That is like when there is a traitor... I mean, the, the witch says, when there's a traitor, then I have a right to a kill, right? The blood of traitors belongs to me. And I was like, well, just, just traitors? Like, murderers are fine, you know, you don't have to, like, it's okay. You know, like, cheaters, no problems, just traitors. Um, and then the deeper magic is sort of even more specific. When a person who is innocent gives his life freely on the part of a traitor, then... Stone table shall break. That's in the deeper magic before the dawn of time. Stone table shall break, and death itself shall be reversed. How do, what, what, what is this? What do we do with this? I was always, when I first read this, I was seven, deeply mystified by the deep magic and the deeper magic. Like I, was, I was trying to f- figure out like in what sense it was deeper. Um, and I remember when I was seven, my initial conception of this, because the witch mentions you remember that the deep magic is written in letters as thick as a spear length, uh, you know, on the side of the secret mountain. And it's like, so the deeper magic, I'm like, it must be like two spear lengths deep. <laughs> uh, but I think that that's not quite right. I'm asking what do you think? Uh, I think it's, um, it's a description of the evolution of order in the world. Like, you have less things making chaos at the beginning of creation, and then as things progress, things get kind of hazy and morality gets skewed, and there's gray areas, and you have less rules because you have more people who can, you know, you have more people who, you know, have their own agendas and have their own. Potentially, and I agree, this, it doesn't function as a, a broad, you know, this is not like the Ten Commandments or something, right? This is not like 
you know, we're going to get, you know, the deep magic is like a rundown of all the things that, like, you can't do and what are going to, it's not like, it's not like the law. It's not like the Ten Commandments. It's not a thou shalt not. Instead, what is it? Thou shalt not is a command. It's a negative command, but it's a command. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's probably even like a statement of fact, right? Those who are traitors are in the hands of the white witch. What happens, you know, if A, then B. That's how the deep magic works, right? Action consequence. What's the, how does the deeper magic work? And what's the relationship between the deeper magic and the deep magic? Who wrote them? Whose magic are we talking about? The Emperor over the Sea. The Emperor over the Sea. Who's he? Aslan's father. Aslan's father. Both are the Emperor's magic. This is not, as might be tempting to think, like the witch's magic, which is being undone by the deeper magic of the Emperor. Both of them are the Emperor's magic. And Aslan is equally defensive of both of them. When people say, isn't there maybe a way we can get around this deep magic business? Nobody ever suggested that again. <laughs> right? He is enforcing the deep magic. It is not evil. I just have a question. Um, Aslan, you have said earlier that Aslan was, um, was depressed and, and sad when he went to go walk to, to do this deed. Um, and yet he has a thorough understanding of the deep and deeper magic. So... I wonder why he was so sad and so maybe not maybe not afraid but but weighed down yeah. heavily. Yeah. Well it, from the context just seems to be his I think the primary emphasis there is on the fact that Aslan is not just performing some kind of magical right here. That this is not just like, ah, you have invoked the deep magic and I shall trump you with the deeper magic. Ta ha <laughs> His feelings leading up to it show this is not fun. That there's real pain. That there's real. Um, the deeper magic is premised upon actual sacrifice, and that Aslan is quite dreading being ridiculed, tortured, and killed. Um, as you know, one can understand. But that. But uh, but I think that that is really designed to sort of say this is not just. Ah, you are like you have one spell, and I shall perform the counter spell. But but that it's a real sacrifice involving real pain and real suffering on his part, um, both in the actual event and even in the anticipation of the event, reconciling himself actually to going through with that very very painful experience. I must set you free like statues out of the courtyard. Uh, <laughs> though it's not quite yet the first day of the holidays. Who uh, wants to bash down the door? <laughs> yes. We begin Peter Beagle for Wednesday. We're watching the movie, right? <laughs> That's it for this time. Next time, Professor Olson discusses The Last Unicorn by Peter S. Beagle, chapters 1 through 4. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.